It is my great joy to minister the word to you this morning, and I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the epistle of Jude, where we continue to work our way through this particular section of Scripture, verse by verse. In a few minutes, we will be looking at verses 14 through 23. But before we do, I would invite you to think with me for a moment. Whenever we think about the sovereignty of God, we must confess that it is an amazing truth. To think that God reigns supreme over all of his creation. To think that he is the creator and the sustainer and the consummator of all things. To think that he works all things after the counsel of his will. That he orchestrates everything in this world, all of the events of history, to accomplish his purpose, which is ultimately to glorify himself. Amazing thought. And we see this in many fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. In fact, God spoke through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 46, beginning in verse 9. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Now, today we will be looking at this passage in Job and we are reminded that God has spoken through Job. I'm sorry, through Jude, and he has given us yet another prediction of something that is about to happen, a prediction of coming judgment. And this one will be focused primarily on apostates, on false teachers, those who have heard the truth, but have chosen to ignore it and instead conjure up their own version of truth in order to advance their own selfish agendas, causing the very nostrils of God to flare in indignation. Now, may I remind you, before we look at this judgment in Jude, that God has promised judgment on others in the past. And wherever he has promised judgment, he has delivered on his promise. Whatever he has promised, he has delivered on precisely, perfectly, and literally. For example, in Genesis 3.15, he promised to judge Satan. And he did just that through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis 6, he promised to execute judgment on mankind for its, in, its sinfulness by flooding the whole world. And 120 years later... He did just that in Genesis 18. He promised to execute judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and he did. In Exodus, God promised to execute judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and he did. In Ezekiel chapters 26 through 28, he promised to execute judgment on Tyre. And he gave seven very specific events that would occur. And each prediction was fulfilled perfectly, precisely, literally. In fact, God spoke through the prophets Obadiah, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Ezekiel that he would judge several different nations, including Ammon, Babylon, Damascus, Edom, Egypt, Moab, Philistia, and Tyre. And each prophecy was fulfilled. Precisely, perfectly, literally. In Jeremiah 25, God promised to use Babylon to judge Judah for 70 years for violating the Sabbath law, and he did. And in numerous Old Testament passages, God promised to judge sin through the suffering of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would willingly die on a cross. And each prophecy of divine judgment on sin upon the Savior was fulfilled perfectly, precisely, and literally. In Matthew 24, Jesus predicted the destruction of 
the temple and Jerusalem. And a few years later in A.D. 70, that's exactly what happened. Now, there are also many future judgments that have been predicted. And based on what he has done, you would naturally, logically assume that these also will be fulfilled precisely, perfectly, literally. God has predicted that he would execute judgment on several specific persons and people groups, including Israel, ungodly nations, Satan, Antichrist, the false prophet and unbelievers, to mention but a few. In Daniel 9, for example, God has promised seven final years of judgment upon Israel. As the text reads in verse 24, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. This will be a time known as the tribulation when God will save a generation of ethnic Jews, as he has promised, his Jews are his elect, and he will save them, and he will also pour out his wrath upon the ungodly at that time. And that's predicted as well in Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 through 19, a time that will culminate in what he has prophesied called the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19. Also, this will be the prelude to the final judgment when Christ returns the second time in power and great glory to establish his earthly kingdom, fulfilling the promises that he made to Abraham and to David and to all of his people, covenants that were unilateral, that were unconditional, that were irreversible, promises made all through the Old Testament by the prophets by Jesus and also by the apostles in the New Testament. All of redemptive history, my friends, continues to move inexorably towards the second coming of Christ. And God has promised in eternity past that that day will come. He has said in Acts 17:31 that he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And Jesus has also said in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And God has also promised that he will someday judge the nations. We read this in verses 31 through 33 of Matthew 25. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, we read more about what will occur at the end of the tribulation, that he has promised to judge Satan yet again, along with the Antichrist and the false prophet. Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years and then released for a final rebellion. And then he will finally be cast into the lake of fire where he will experience the wrath of God forever. And in Revelation 20, verse 11, he has promised to judge all unbelievers. At the end of his thousand year reign upon the earth, this will be a time known as the great white throne judgment. This will be a day of unspeakable horror for all who have refused to confess Christ as Savior and Lord of their life. Jesus predicted this day as well in Matthew 13. Beginning in verse 40, he said, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Now, dear friends, please hear me. Make no mistake about it. Just as God has promised and delivered on past judgments, he will likewise deliver yet again on future judgments. But there is one other specific group, one other specific group upon which he will execute his judgment. There is yet another group that God singles out in a variety of passages throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. A group that is so vile, that is so wretched, so utterly contemptible that he would single them out specifically as objects of his wrath. And that group is those who are the apostates within the church. False teachers, false prophets, religious phonies who knew the truth but rejected the truth deliberately, substituted their own truth. Those who creep in unaware. Notice what Jude has said in verse 4, that they were the ones who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. We've been studying them. They are the dreamers, the false visionaries, the counterfeit teachers, the religious entrepreneurs who exploit naive followers, conning people out of their life savings, defiling their own flesh with immorality and with greed. It's a very interesting and solemn observation, isn't it? That the very evil that crept into that early church would continue until the Lord returns and judges them. What a profound wickedness to pervert that which is perfectly true. In this, the proverb is true that says that the corruption of that which is the most excellent is the worst of corruptions. You see, these are the ones, remember, that look not to God, but to man for recognition. These are the ones that are bereft of the Holy Spirit, the ones that mock the truth, the ones that walk after their own lusts and exalt themselves. Those who, according to Hebrews 10:26, go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That text goes on to say they are the ones that have insulted the spirit of grace. They are the ones that incite a holy God to wrath. Indicated by what God says in verses 30 and 31 of Hebrews 10. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we come to the text this morning, realizing that the spirit of God has here imparted to Jude both an extreme anger towards false teachers, towards apostates, as well as inspired warnings that we would all do well to hear and heed. This is a dramatic and graphic description of apostates within the church. This whole epistle of Jude, as was Second Peter, exposing their danger and the certain promise of the eternal retribution they will experience in hell. You know, whenever I turn on the television in, particularly, in particular and I see false teachers and I, and I see the cameras pan out across the audience, I, I tremble and I grieve for those who are being deceived. Certainly the repeated theme of divine judgment against apostates underscores God's utter contempt of them. Now, with that introduction, let's read the text beginning in verse 14 of Jude and about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers finding fault following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, 
ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time, there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And because of this, I have entitled my discourse to you this morning, the apostates doom and Christian responsibility. And as we look at this text, I've divided it into three very simple categories that I pray will help you understand it. First, we will see the promise of judgment. Secondly, we will see the verdict on apostates. And finally, we will see the responsibility of the saints. First, notice the promise of judgment. You see, here again, we see God's sovereignty at work through the first human prophecy recorded in Scripture, a prophecy of Enoch that was not part of the Old Testament canon, but was nevertheless an accurate and well-known prophecy passed on passed down by tradition. And I find it interesting to note that even as the first prophecy given to a human being was about Christ's second coming in judgment, likewise, the last prophecy given in the Bible to a human being is of his second coming as well. And that's recorded in Revelation 22:20, 20, where we read, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now notice verse 14. And about these also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam. And indeed it was Adam, Seth, Enos, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, and then Enoch, as we read in Genesis 5. And it's fascinating that Enoch, like Elijah, was unique in that God took him directly into heaven. He never died. We read in Genesis 5:24, and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. In other words, because of his profound godliness, God simply ushered him into his very presence without ever dying. I believe it is a beautiful picture, a prophetic picture of the rapture of the church. But notice he says about these also, in other words, about the apostates, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Past tense indicating that it is absolutely certain that he is going to come as if it has already happened. He came with many thousands of his holy ones. This is a reference to the angelic host that will accompany the Lord Jesus Christ as his executioners of judgment at his second coming. We read of this also in Second Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, where we Read, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Then he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. So this is the context here. Enoch prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones, verse 15, here's why, to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, I find it amazing, once again, to think that God would not only know all things pertaining to the plague of apostates among his elect, knowing it from the very beginning of redemptive history, but also that he would predict their impending doom. An amazing thought. He speaks of all the ungodly, 
especially the apostates who are the focus of this entire epistle. Ungodly, meaning those that are without God, that are godless. They have no reverence for God. Though they pretend to be godly, they are utterly bereft of divine righteousness. They are lost. They may fool the undiscerning masses, but they do not fool God. And even as God has fulfilled his previous judgments upon the wicked, as I have said, perfectly, precisely and literally, so will he yet again when he executes his judgment on apostates at his second coming. So first we see the promise of his judgment when he comes to execute it. And then secondly, we see the verdict on apostates. In other words, the crimes that they have committed under the watchful eye of omniscient holiness. And here is kind of a review once again of what Jude has said in other places, as well as what we read in Second Peter and other passages in Scripture. He says in verse 16, these are grumblers. This is a term that was used in the Septuagint to describe Israel when they murmured and they grumbled against God. In the wilderness, remember, they complained about his law. They protested his authority. They objected to his sovereign rule over their lives. And of course, all of this, you must understand, typifies an apostate. You see, friends, this is how you will be able to recognize them. One way of many. You will be able to see in them a sullen rebellion against the clear teachings of Scripture. You take any clear doctrine and you will find that apostates will complain about it. They will not like it. They will begin to rewrite it according to their own understanding. Rewrite it in such a way that it is palatable to their theological categories, which are ultimately self-serving and frankly demonic. You see... What you will find with apostates is they will have an ingenious capacity to torture texts beyond their recognition, to somehow get them to say what they want them to say, ultimately because they are grumblers, murmuring against divine authority. And I might add that murmuring is always the first stage of apostasy. You might even check yourself there. If you find yourself murmuring against the great and clear doctrines of the word of God, you are on a slippery slope. Like those who heard Jesus, remember in John six, Jesus speaking about his divine sovereignty and salvation and about his deity. And in John six, forty one, it says that the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And then later on, the text tells us in verse 66 that many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So apostates are grumblers. This is part of the verdict upon them. But secondly, he says that they find fault. Finding fault, he says. This means complaining, placing blame somewhere else. Now, this is a little bit more open than the murmuring, which is something more of an attitude in the heart. This finding fault now is outspoken, verbal, public rebellion. No, God doesn't mean that. I know that's what Scripture says, but that's not what it really means. What it really means is such and such. You see, God doesn't really want you to deny yourself. He wants you to be fulfilled. He wants you to be happy and successful And wealthy and all of this type of stuff. You see, you must understand, dear friends, that you do not exist for God, but God exists for you. And because he loves you so much, he wants you to understand how you can manipulate him to perform personal miracles for you. And on and on it goes. And there are a myriad of such false, deceptive interpretations of Scripture. Well, naturally, they do this because Jude goes on to say that they are following after their own lusts, which means they they have no desire, nor do they have any capacity to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
You see, they are ruled by one thing and one thing alone, and that's their lusts. They're slaves to sin. He goes on to say they speak arrogantly. In the New King James Version, it says they used great swelling words. In other words, what he's saying is that they are so proud and they are so utterly self-absorbed, self-centered, so utterly committed to self-aggrandizement and self-fulfillment that they have become skilled in deceiving people by the power of their confident, spiritual-sounding rhetoric. I find it fascinating even to watch politicians sometimes say a whole bunch of nothing, and you find people just get all excited about it and clapping and carrying on. And you think, well, wait a minute, what did that guy really say? He really didn't say anything, but he sure got the crowd worked up. Second Peter 2, verse 18, describes this as well. There the Spirit of God speaks through Peter and says that for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires. In other words, they tell people what they want to hear. By sensuality, he goes on to say, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So they find fault. They follow after their own lust. They speak arrogantly. Also, they flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Again, if you want to attract a crowd, you tell people what they want to hear. You be as seeker sensitive as you possibly can. You don't want to offend anybody. And certainly one of the marks of an apostate will be that they believe the lie that says that it is possible to be both faithful and popular at the same time. They will tickle people's ears, the scripture says, manipulating them with clever distortions and false doctrine Kind of like a deceptive salesman would do. Fleecing, undiscerning people. And you know what? We've all been a victim of that somewhere along the line, haven't we? And boy, don't we feel like a fool later on when we found out that we've been conned. As a result, those who sit under their teaching will likewise be deceived. They will be ignorant of the truth, be undiscerning. And yet, what you will find increasingly in their lives is a commitment to the lies they've been taught. And they will absolutely be convinced of their spiritual supremacy and their doctrinal precision. Flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage, which literally means ultimately they're trying to make money off the people. What a tragic thing. What a contrast to the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in Philippians 2, we read that Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearances of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, I shake my head in dismay when I watch apostates manipulating the masses, trying to somehow convince them that God will perform some type of a personal miracle for you if you will only send my ministry some money. Plant your seed faith. And watch the harvest come in and on and on it goes. How different from the Lord Jesus Christ that emptied himself. Child of God, please hear me. I believe this with all of my heart on the basis of Scripture. Hell will be hotter for these type of people than for any others. What a detestable wickedness. <laughs> what a blasphemous perversion of the truth. What a wretched manipulation of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of God unto salvation. And for this reason, these people will be judged lest they repent. 
These are the sins they have committed. And thus the divine verdict is guilty. Guilty on all accounts. And their sentence will be eternal damnation. Well, what should our response be in these days of apostasy? What is the responsibility of the saint? And I have six of them that I believe flow from this text. First of all, we must learn to remember. I'm just going to give you one word, one, one word at a time. Remember. Notice verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's he referring to? Remember what word? Well, friends, it's very simple. Remember the numerous words pertaining to false prophets that will rise up within the true church who will pretend to be apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors. But inwardly, as Jesus said, are ravenous wolves. Beloved, we ought to remember the warnings. If I told you this morning that our church had been targeted by sexual predators, planning on infiltrating our ranks and perpetrating their atrocities upon our children, what would be your response? Each of you would be instantly enraged and probably hypervigilant, and rightfully so. But, my friends, as horrific as that would be, such a threat is far exceeded by that of spiritual predators in our pulpits, disguised as angels of light, spiritual predators in our schools, in our Bible colleges, in our seminaries, writing materials that we find in our Christian bookstores, writing the lyrics and performing the, the music that so often fills the ears of our young people and even our adults. People disguised as angels of light, influenced by Satan himself, disguised even as angels of light, preaching and teaching Demonic lies that condemn men's souls. Verse 18, he says, remember that they were saying to you. In other words, here's the warning that we've had all through Scripture that we need to remember. And the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. And here Jude appears to be quoting 2 Peter 3, verse 3 and following. Where it speaks of mockers that laugh about the predictions of Christ's coming Judgment at his second coming. In other words, in their arrogance, apostates will mock at the holiness of God when he comes to judge rebels, even as he has done before and has promised to do again. John MacArthur has well said, and I quote, Jesus commanded us to be on guard against false Christs and false prophets. The apostolic era was filled with examples of wolves in sheep's clothing. Church history is strewn with more examples, one after another. Only sinful and willful unbelief can account for the refusal of so many in the church today to heed those warnings, end quote. Beloved, I don't know what else to say, but we have been warned. And we are called to remember those warnings. Then Jude goes on to describe them yet further again, he tells how that they are following after their own ungodly lusts. In other words, they're consumed with selfish ambition and sexual immorality. They're dressed up like a preacher, for example, as Jesus said in Matthew 7. But on the inside, their morals are like that ravenous wolf. You might say that they're dressed up with all of the trappings of a minister of the gospel, but inside... Their morality is like that of a gangster rapper. In verse 19, these are the ones who cause divisions. In other words, these are the ones that separate. That's what the term means. It means to make a boundary, to make a distinction. You see, the enemy of truth is error. And it is error that they teach. 
So naturally, they will separate themselves from those who believe and teach error. They will build their own little empires. False teachers perceive themselves to be the spiritually elite and refuse, therefore, to be doctrinally and spiritually accountable. And what I find fascinating is that they don't last long in a doctrinally sound church. They won't last long because rather quickly the sheep and the shepherds will find them out. Even as a wolf, if he were to somehow adorn himself with a sheep's clothing, if that wolf were to infiltrate a literal sheep herd, it wouldn't take long for the sheep to figure out who he was and what he was up to. Likewise, the shepherds. But these are the ones when they are exposed within even a true church will cause great division. I have seen it in this church. and I pray it will never happen again, but it has happened and it may happen again, but it happens all the time. Church splits, new denominations. Many times these are the things that are formed out of such chaos because these are the ones who cause divisions. They are also worldly minded. It's the idea here of being ruled by your lust. Ruled by lust, not by God and following after your own natural appetite and doing so without any restraint. They're worldly minded. They love, for example, what the world has to offer. We read in 1 John 2, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We are also told that they are devoid of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit of God does not even abide in them because they were never truly born again. And it's for that reason that they have nothing in them to restrain the flesh. So first, our responsibility is to remember. Remember all of those things. Remember those warnings. But secondly, we are to build, verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. There's the command. This is the idea, my friends, of disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. To build yourself up so that you can become strong in doctrine. So that you can become powerful in godliness. So that you can become a great warrior of the faith. Certainly, this is my prayer for all of you, but especially as I, along with others, pour ourselves into you young men. God has given us all the resources we need to be spiritual, spiritually discerning in this dark era of apostasy. He has given us His Word. He has given us His indwelling Holy Spirit. He is giving us one another. He has given us teaching shepherds. And here's why in Ephesians 4, verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now catch this. To the building up. Of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. In other words, doctrinal unity. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And I must say, even as a pastor wanting to equip you and see you built up, many times I feel kind of like a father. And mothers, you can identify this with this as well. You remember those times when your teenager came to you and maybe they wanted to purchase a car and they came in with that profound teenage logic that began with a false presupposition and ended up in absolute chaos, if not bankruptcy. But they were so convinced of it. And what did you do out of your love for them? You said, dear son, dear daughter, wait just a second. Let me fill you in with some discernment that obviously you do not have. Because I want to protect you from a certain disaster. That's what we must all depend upon. 
our fathers and our mothers in the faith, our pastors and our teachers, our elders, so that we can build, build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Beloved, this is not a day for spiritual wimps. And please hear this. We're at war. You must remember this. There is a great battle raging around us and we, meet, we need men of God, not pusillanimous pansies that are incapable of beating their way out of a wet paper sack doctrinally. We need men and women who know the word and live the word. You see, these false teachers are the quintessential deceivers. They get their wisdom from the father of lies. And in ourselves, we are no match for them. But ah, give me the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I, along with you, will decapitate the dragon. Oh, child of God, build yourself up in your most holy faith. Take advantage of all the resources that God has given you to learn and to grow and to serve. So our responsibility is, first of all, to remember, secondly, to build, thirdly, to pray. Verse 20, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. This means praying not in some unknown tongue, as some would want to twist this to mean, but praying consistently with the will of the Spirit of God revealed in Scripture. To know the Scripture so well that the Spirit of God will bring it to mind even as you pray. And as you pour out your heart before the living God, asking Him to help you to live consistently with those truths in the Word of God. And friends, I would rather have one widow that prays in this church than a thousand seminarians who don't. Oh, how I pray for a packed house on Wednesday nights when we gather together to pray. In fact, for just a moment, examine your own heart. Right now, the Spirit of God is shining the light of His omniscience upon your heart, exposing your prayer life. I can't see it. Nobody else can see it, but He can see it. Now I ask you, what does He see? And friends, if He sees no discipline, I would ask you why. Do you not believe that we are at war? Do you not believe that the enemy of your soul is trying to deceive you and destroy you? To rob you of blessing? To take the minds and the hearts of your children as a great spoil of war? Do you not believe that? Do you believe that somehow by your own power you are capable of parrying the blows of the evil one? Friends, I ask you, who has bewitched you? Oh, for men who will lead their wives and children in fervent and disciplined prayer. Oh, yes, you will come before the Lord in prayer in those times of heart-wrenching tragedy. But will you come before the Lord in prayer in the battle for the truth, in those days when the deceiver has lulled you into sleep, lulled you into apathy, thinking that, boy, isn't everything great? Got all that I need here in Middle Tennessee. Got a great wife and family and a job, money in the bank, food on the table, great church to go to. <laughs> What's on television? Beloved, without praying saints... The front-line servants cannot be supplied, and eventually the line will fail. So we are called to remember and to build and to pray, and fourthly, to keep, which means to remain. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. The idea here of keeping ourselves is that of keeping ourselves or remaining within the sphere or the influence of divine blessing through our faithful obedience to the Word of God, walking by the power of the Spirit so that we will not carry out the desire of the flesh, keep ourselves in that realm of godly living. 
You see, disobedient Christians forfeit blessing. And they will constantly struggle under the weight of divine chastening many times without even realizing it. They will grieve the spirit to the point where they will ultimately quench the spirit in their, in their lives. And finally, they will make themselves easy targets for the false teachers. So we are to remember to build, to pray, to keep. Fifthly, we are to wait Notice again in verse 21, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. This means to earnestly expect, to anticipate with great excitement. It's the idea of welcoming something with great joy. And of course, that would be the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. For are you looking forward to that? Do you live in light of eternity? Do you live as if this will be your last day on earth and you cannot wait to experience the final phase of his mercy when you are ultimately fitted in a glorified body, when you are finally conformed to the image of Christ, when you no longer have to deal with your sin and everybody else's sin? Are you waiting anxiously? For those glorious truths to finally come to fruition. See, Christians who live with this kind of perspective will not fall prey to false teachers. Who try to somehow seduce them to living in this world. Have you ever noticed that's that's the theme ultimately is here. How here's how you can learn to kind of manipulate God to get everything to work out for you in this life. You don't have to worry about the next. As long as you do these things, you're going to be taken care of. That's a lie. And the sixth admonition that we have here is to have mercy. Have mercy, verse 22, and have mercy on, and he's going to give us three groups of people in the church. Have mercy on some who are doubting. In other words, he's saying here, show genuine, loving compassion on those who are bewildered, those who are confused, many times those who are exhausted because they have been a victim of a false teacher. I run across them all the time on the telephone, on the emails, letters, some even within our church. These are the ones who doubt the truth of what the apostates are teaching, but they're so frustrated because they're they're just confused because it sounds so real and so right. And beloved, that's the genius of a good counterfeit. And Satan is the best. We are to come alongside them and minister truth to them, to have mercy on some who are doubting. And then he says to save others, snatching them out of the fire. Now, this goes to a little bit deeper level here with those who are victims of apostate teaching. This is the idea of going into the burning house of deception, if you will, and rescuing those who are utterly convinced of the lies. To grab a hold of them and to bring them out, bring them into safety. The word snatch literally means to grab someone by force. And the imagery here is undoubtedly taken from Amos chapter 4, verse 11, that speaks of God saving Israel from distinction, saying, And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Beloved, you must hear this. This is our responsibility. If you know anyone engulfed in the flames of deception, God has called us to snatch them from that inferno. With forthright and loving truth to do all we can to preserve them and to bring them to safety. And the third and the final group are the most hardened of all. And these are the most dangerous. Underscore that in your mind. These are the most dangerous in verse 23. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Friends, these are the hardened heretics. Like the Pharisees of old. These are the most arrogant of apostates. 
And we must approach them and have mercy on them, but we must do so with great fear, great caution. The idea here is this is very dangerous business. Because, again, remember that their lies are so clever. They may even confuse you and cause you to begin to doubt the truth. And I warn you, many times heretics know error better than you know truth. And you must be cautious. It says hating even the garment. Literally in the original language, it means underwear. Polluted by the flesh, which means underwear that is stained or soiled by bodily function. A very graphic picture. And what he's saying here is you should treat their spiritual corruption the very same way you would handle somebody's dirty underwear. And how would you do that if you had to do it? You would do it with great caution so as to not get any of the filth on you. That's the idea. Beloved, be very careful when you deal with hardened heretics, lest you soil yourself with their corruption. Oh, dear church family, the promise of judgment is certain upon apostates. The verdict on apostates is final. And our responsibility is clear. We must remember, we must build, we must pray, we must keep, we must wait, and we must have mercy. And I pray that each one of us will rededicate ourselves to these ends for the glory of God and for the joy of the saints. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you dwell within us and give us the power to live out that which we have been taught. Oh, God, how I pray that you will cause us all to heed the warning. May we look for it in the music that we allow ourselves to hear. The television shows we allow ourselves to watch. Even the religious books and seminars and gurus that we listen to and read. Lord, may we be so, so careful. We pray, Lord, that you will use us mightily in this great battle for the truth. Convict us and empower us afresh to these ends, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.